It's really good to see you again tonight. I hope that you're having a wonderful week in all that you endeavor to do, and I pray that you find it useful in your faith to set aside an hour each night like this, even in these trying and very strange times, to come and be with God's people and study the Word of God. It is important that you brought the Word with you tonight. It is our focus of all that we do, and I encourage you to open it to the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3. A little moving around to do in our scripture as we begin, the first passage will be in 2 Peter 3. As we get going, maybe it's worth mentioning that we're in January, and January typically for Christians is a reset month. It's the month when we set up our resolutions, when we decide what our goals are, and I like that. I like looking at a calendar year as an opportunity to measure real change. So one of the things that you can do in January is kind of set up, maybe not resolutions necessarily, but some vision of who you want to become. And I believe that every Christian should have real clarity about that. A mistake that Christians make too often is everybody wants to get better. Everybody wants to be a better Christian in December than they were in January, but very few of us actually know what better looks like. Like, what would a better you be in December? You say, well, I want to be a stronger Christian. Okay, great. So tell me what you as a stronger Christian looks like. Do you look different? Do you sound different? And so a great thing to do in January is kind of get this vision of a better you. And I hope that tonight makes that so clear for you in terms of the language of the New Testament that when you leave here in a little while, you have a very clear assessment of where you are on the growth scale, very honest picture of here's where I am in my spiritual growth. And more importantly, I want you to know what the next level looks like. There are five levels, as you'll see tonight. I'll show you why we lay it out that way. You may not be at level four headed to five, but you need to know here's where I am and here's what better looks like. I hope that some of the stuff we've covered already this week has given you some of that clarity and that vision. Sunday in both lessons, we talked about this book, didn't we? And we talked about how everything about this book is about Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, this book teaches us about Jesus. And I got great comments about your study and your thoughts in those lessons. And people come up to me and say, I would love to know more about that. I wish I had a better handle on where Jesus is in the Old Testament and how to find that narrative. Well, that's great that you just said that. I think that's a good vision to have by the end of the year. What if by the end of the year you had a better grasp on the presence of Jesus throughout Scripture than you had when you got here today or Sunday? Now, I got to tell you, one sermon's not going to do it. You're going to have to decide, that's where I want to get, and I'm going to do what I can to get there. By the way, since uh, you know it's a gospel meeting and I can add a couple minutes here and there and you won't run off on me, let me give you a little tip on that. If you enjoyed that study about Joseph or Genesis 22 or Genesis 3, and you would like to see Jesus more clearly in your personal study, and this will connect to our sermon in a little while, in your personal study, let me give you a little tip. Did you know that in the New Testament, there are about 885 quotes or references to Old Testament scripture? I may have said that on Sunday. You're going, yeah, you said that on Sunday. I don't remember if I said it on Sunday or not. 885. So what if you just read the New Testament this year? And every time you came across an Old Testament quote that connected to Jesus, you opened your Old Testament to that text and you put a big star beside it and you put Jesus there. By the time you're done with a New Testament read at the end of this year, you will have gone back into the Old Testament hundreds of times. 
and you will have noted connections to Christ. And the next time you read your Old Testament, you'll see him in places you never saw him before. Like, I think that's a real thing we can all do. Uh, I would give you an example, but we need to move on. But Matthew, like Matthew 1 through 4, has seven Old Testament quotes, all of them about Jesus. So what if you just went back in all those places to Isaiah and Micah and, and Hosea, just wrote it down. So that's the kind of thing we need is, here's where I want to be. Last night, a little tougher, right? Last night was about identifying our weaker points where we want to be more spiritual and we keep fighting the flesh and we wonder what's happening and it turns out it's just self, isn't it? I am at the center of that experience, which I didn't tell you last night, but that is a problem. You know, you are at the center of every experience you've ever had. Did you know that? You're in the center of every cup you've ever picked up. Like it's you, you see everything through your eyes. You never see it where you're not a part of it. So the idea of removing yourself from it to see it more clearly is actually really, really hard. But you know, I think maybe you can envision yourself better at that. Identifying throughout the year, here's one of those places where I'm always doing this and start systematically working that. I think we can be much better people by the end of the year than we are now, though we are forgiven by the grace of God today. We can get better. So I hope that all of the lessons give you some of that vision and momentum. And if they don't, don't worry about it because tonight's, I believe, most certainly will. We are going to talk about real spiritual growth. Now, the term spiritual growth bugs me intensely because everybody talks about it. We need spiritual growth. We want our young people to grow. You know, you change the words to make it sound more clever. To grow spiritually. Like, we want everybody to grow. But you ask somebody, like, tell me what that means. What does it look like? And I just don't think a lot of Christians know what to say. They don't understand what it really means. You know, we come up with boxes to check. That's what we're really good at in the church. We love to give you a box. If you check this box, you've grown spiritually. Have you ever read the New Testament in a year? Somebody says, maybe not. Read the New Testament this year and you have grown spiritually. Folks, I know people who read the Bible every day and are not growing spiritually at all. It's useful, but that's not real spiritual growth. It's a tool, isn't it? You say, well, uh, do you come on Sunday nights? Eh, I don't know if I always come on Sunday night. Well, there you go. There's your box. If by the end of the year you're coming on Sunday night, you have grown spiritually. Can I tell you stories about people who come every time the doors are open and they're not changing? Like those things are important but we need a better model for spiritual growth. So to help with this, I found the grainiest, most, you know, just odd, simple looking thing I could find on the internet and decided to use it. So I want you to look at this picture. It turns out God is so good at helping us understand spiritual ideas by showing it to us in the physical world. He uses all kinds of imagery about plants and animals, but he also uses human beings. We understand that as a mortal in the flesh, you grow. You start out as, and these, this will be the five words I'll be using tonight. You start out as an infant and then a toddler. And then this, I don't know, I, I chose preteen. He looks like he's ready to be a teen, but he's not. And then a teenager. And then hopefully you become an adult. Now you're somewhere on that scale in the physical world. And you know that the only way to be healthy is to get from one to the next in a reasonable period of time. So the question tonight is, if these five stages were designed as spiritual stages, where are you? Well, I'd love to know what you're thinking right now. Because if you're over the age of 40, you know you're an adult. If you've been in the church a long time, certainly I'm a spiritual adult. If you're an elder, you're obviously a spiritual adult. I think you're going to find tonight, we know each other well enough, I can just tell you this, 
that there are a lot of 60-year-old toddlers in the church. A lot of them. And, and, and when you see what that is, you're going to see that I'm not insulting anyone. I'm stating that we've come up with some false ideas of what spiritual maturity is. And it's keeping people from true development. Now, lest you wonder why we're studying this, let me give you a few passages here. Turns out that the Bible is very focused on growing from where you are to where God can use you more. You know 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, maybe we all know this. Peter's ending his letter, his last letter, and he's talking about not being carried away by error in verse 17. He says, if you want that to happen, you need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is God's plan that you grow in grace and knowledge. But listen to me carefully. That is more than Bible reading. It is so much more. It always includes it. But it's so much more than just quoting passages. If you'll go back with me to some of these other passages, I just want you to see it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, when he begins his letters, Peter wrote two letters, at the end of his last one, he says, grow in grace and knowledge so you can fight off the devil. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 1, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, I want to say two things about this passage. First of all, we're intended to grow. If you're a baby in Christ, if I get done teaching here in a little while and you're like, I don't believe it, I won't tell a soul, but I'm still an infant, even though I've been in the church 10 years. You may want to tell someone, you may want to keep it to yourself. But the point here, number one is God wants you to grow. This year needs to be a growth year for you. And also, if I understand this reading, he may be talking to Christians who've been Christians a while. And he may be saying, you know, you're like newborn babies. You probably shouldn't be by now. But you are, but that's okay. Because we'll just go back to that stage and we'll grow from there. If you guys listen to the Excel Still More podcast, you know we never get down on ourselves for where we are, as long as we're ready to grow from here. And I hope that whatever you hear this week and whatever it says about you and your life, you don't leave here looking back, wondering why you didn't fix it 10 years ago. Who cares about that? God doesn't. The question is, do you know how to grow from where you are now and do you know what better looks like? Uh, here are some passages that we'll look at briefly now, and then at the end of the lesson we'll look at with greater detail. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. This whole section is really useful, but let me just read a couple of verses here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. He talks about unity and maturity, verse 13, becoming a mature man, verse 13, whatever that means. As a result, we're no longer to be children. So there you have it. Become a mature man, verse 13, no longer to be children tossed about here and there, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So there you have it, three verses. Grow from a child who is affected to a grown man who teaches the truth in love. One more passage here for the intro. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We will certainly be looking at verse 12 in a little while. You may give it a glance now, but for now, I just want you in verse 14. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now's a good time to tell you that growing spiritually, just like it takes years here, is kind of like karate black belts and stuff. You've got to put in the work. It will take training. I guarantee that wherever you find yourself tonight, 
You got there over however many years it took, but the next level on this chart is going to take time, training, and energy. But not only is it worth it, read the verses again. God says, do it. Do it. If we could get one message across to churches across the country, that you don't have the option to be the same you a year from today than you are today. You don't have that option. You say, well, what do you mean I don't have that option? That's what I've done the last few years. I'm telling you, if you want to be in fellowship with Jesus, you don't have that option. We talk about with plants. If you're not growing, you're dying. There's no staying in that place. So we're going to talk about what that means. And again, I think that we've got some mistakes on the way we think. We sometimes think that a babe in Christ is someone who, you know, can't name the 12 apostles. If you can't name the 12 apostles, you're an infant. And if you can quote at least three verses in Revelation, you're mature. Folks, we got to get past that. There are people who can quote half the book of Leviticus who are not mature Christians. They can just quote scripture. There are people who forget where verses are, and yet their life is one of great spiritual maturity. I want to make a book recommendation tonight for your consideration. We did so good on the, on the Christmas mugs last night. I heard we have almost a sellout of Christmas mugs on Amazon. That's pretty much a true story. So if I can send you to Amazon for Christmas mugs, I'm hopeful that I can send you to Amazon to purchase a book written by a friend of mine. The guy's name is Jack Wilkie. He's a young man, about 30 years old. He lives not far from me, about an hour away. I just met him this last year. Uh, he's associated with the Church of Christ, maybe not the exact same branch that we're in today, but it will not affect the reading of this book. He wrote a book called Church Reset, and I would love for you to check out that book, Church Reset. He argues that a lot of the ideas we have in the church today about the way the first century church or the way churches work today, where we're trying to match the first century, a lot of it has been so affected by the past 500 years and we don't even realize it. The restoration and reformation movements, the reformation movement of coming out of Catholicism and starting over. Well, a lot of stuff from Catholicism got carried over and stuck. And in the 1800s, when Alexander Campbell and some of those guys said, let's get back to the Bible, they did. But a lot of the denominational stuff kind of stuck. Uh, he gives examples like the little wafers and cups that we drink. I don't know that it was a wafer and cup experience when Jesus put the Passover feast down there and they partook. But you know, we carried that over through the churches of history and, and it's fine, but it's affected. But more importantly, he argues this, and I won't spend a lot of time on it tonight, but he argues that one of the things that the true church borrowed from our Catholic history and neighbors is the idea of here's what a strong church is. You guys ready to hear what a strong church is? You're going to love it because you, you definitely got one. A strong church is, first of all, you need a nice building. You need a, a well-kept building, an ornate building, a pretty building. You need a very attractive structure. Then you need to fill it with super comfortable pews. Not that wood stuff. No, no, nobody comes for the wood stuff. No metal chairs. You or no metal metal chairs that you sit in that hurt. You need to have, and you guys have like us, you got the double thing going. You got like the padding on the back and at the base. You need a nice, well-conditioned building and pews that face towards the front and then get yourself a guy with a title, clergy preacher, and have him show up every week with a prepared message and just feed it to everybody. And that's it. That's all you got to do. And so if members, if they'll do two things, that's all you got to do. Show up and stay awake. That was only one thing. It was two-parter. It was one thing. Show up and let the preacher feed you a lesson and come every time the doors are open 
and go out and live a pretty good life and boom, you're a mature Christian. That is not what a mature Christian is. And if we think that that's the bar we hold people to, just come to church and stay awake and be a good person. We're teaching people how to be this. And we're not showing them that you need more. Now, am I saying we shouldn't have the nice buildings or the nice pews or the paid, located, gifted, dynamic speaker? Uh, Sean told me that the next thing I should say is, no, we definitely should keep all those, especially the third one. <laughs> Look, there's nothing wrong with this unless I would say this. Let me put it this way. I'll be gone after tomorrow night anyway, maybe tonight. <laughs> if this is getting in the way of this, then yeah, you need to get rid of all of it. If this design we bought into, I mean, there's not even a, there's not even a Bible verse for a building. Like, if what we've got going is, is capping us and our membership, then yeah, sell it, change it, do it differently. I don't think we have to do that. I'm not that scorched earth guy. I think we just need a clearer picture, and I want to give it to you tonight as we move through in our study. So let's talk about this just a little bit. Several things we'll be studying. Hebrews, if you're still there, just hang there. In a few minutes, I want to take you back to it. So first of all, let's go through the natural progression here, and I think you'll see exactly what we're saying tonight. When it comes to the natural, physical life and the stages, there are at least five stages. I think Jack in his book has four. For me, there's five. And that's why I chose this photo. First of all, you have an infant. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to what happens with infants. Infants can do nothing for themselves. They don't know how to do anything for themselves. They do not know how to prepare food, and they do not know how to eat food. With an infant, the mother, the milk, the, the formula, the baby food, whatever, it has to be created by others and given to them by others. They can do nothing on their own. They have no skills. But you know, if an infant stays in that stage for long, they become very unhealthy and they cannot live. We anticipate that they will get a little bit older and at least one thing will change. Now, toddlers still not real great in the kitchen, still don't know how to make oatmeal. Maybe, maybe yours does, mine do not. But toddlers, one thing they can do is if you, watch this, if you will prepare the food for them, they have the ability to eat it. They can dig in and grab the food and put it in their own mouths. You've got to do most of the work. But if you put it to them, they can sit there and go, I know how to put this inside of me. And that's the stage of toddlers. And if I can just go ahead and say something. No, I'm not going to say it. No, I'll go ahead and say it. All right. I mean, this is kind, this is, this is kind of like what's going on right now a little bit. And, and I, it's fine. It's fine to have this. It just can't be all this. I built a lesson. I flew in from Texas. I prepared the meal. We're just glad you're here and you're listening. Your Bible's open. And you're not, a, you're not an infant. Like, you're not just sitting there going, I don't know. Like, I'm giving, and you're going, okay, that makes sense. I see that verse. I, I, okay, I'm in the cup. Like, okay, that Joseph thing was interesting. Like, that's good. But this is not enough. This is where you end up with churches that grow and grow and do really great until the preacher moves. You guys ever known anything like that? And then if you can't like get a really great preacher in next, and everything goes crazy. Why? Because we need somebody to feed us. 
And I think maybe there's a little more. So let me get back to back to the physical point. We eventually would like for you to get in that other state. There's a better word than preteen. I couldn't think of it like adolescent, maybe, but that's a little broad. But, you know, somewhere between the age of maybe like six and 13, you have those who 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 not only can they feed themselves, but a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit, they begin to learn to mix the ingredients and make their own food. Now, it may be an oatmeal packet. It may be a box of cereal and some milk out of the fridge. Maybe they can do spaghetti. They're probably pretty good at the microwave. They spent much time with dad. They're really good at the microwave. Not good at much else. But they get to a point where they, if, if it came down to it, like they begin to mix things together and they can do a little bit for themselves because eventually they become teenagers. And you know, teenagers get into high school and then they graduate high school and then maybe they go off to college. And when they go off to college, mom doesn't have dinner ready for them at five or six o'clock at night. They've got to be able to do for themselves. But what's really great with teenagers is, not only can they now begin to prepare food for self, watch this, very important. Stage three is self-sufficiency. Stage four is when you begin to not just be a consumer, we start as a consumer. A teenager actually can begin to make a few meals that they can share with other people. Now, not a lot, maybe. My daughter Hannah, a few years ago, decided she wanted to be the next great baking star. I'm very glad that she, this jacket's not, it's getting stretched, the button's barely hanging on, but I was really glad she decided to do that. So she started making scones. So she made scones for herself until she got scones down, and then she got excited about the scones. I got excited about the scones. And she started making scones for the family. She's like, I want to make scones tonight for everyone. And I want to make uh, cinnamon rolls. And then she started making casseroles. But the point is this, you start getting excited about the fact that you can do some stuff on your own that you want to share it. And that's really important. It's really important that a teenager learns to start making food for others because eventually they're going to grow up and have their own children. And we're back to step one again. We have infants that they now have had, and the only way the infants can live is if grown-ups are now able to prepare food for others, yes, but also begin to teach. They now have to teach a baby how to eat, and they have to teach their adolescent how to cook a little bit. They're purely, at this point, producers. And those are two words I want you to leave here with tonight. In the first stage, completely sufficient on others and consuming in the middle, self-sufficient, that's great, but that's not the end game either. Can I just say that about the church too? The end game is not that you're hanging in there and doing pretty good in your life. That's, that's the middle stage. Like, welcome to teenagership, if, if that's where you are. But the question is, how do we get past that and become producers? And that's what we see here. So let's look at this in a spiritual way then. How would you make spiritual connections? Do you think you could do that? When someone is a brand new Christian, or they're very young, they don't know the Bible very well. They could be any age, they're new Christians. They're counting on people to study the Bible with them, to make the food for them and to explain it to them. Like, here's the story of Noah, and here's what that means, and here's what baptism is, and here's how you can use this. They don't even know how to make applications when they're infants in Christ. Babies in Christ are just kind of reading it, trying to figure it out. And that's a stage where we all begin. But we must grow past that, and I know that you have. And you get to a point now where you're like, you know what? If someone else will teach the class, I'll do my lesson and I'll learn a few things. Or if Sean will preach a sermon and he'll have his points lined out really good, I can take Sean's work or an elder here's work and I can actually begin to make application. That's super good. Folks, don't stop there. 
You say, what's next? Am I just supposed to start preaching sermons? No, even the Bible says in James 3 that not everybody should be teachers. Please don't leave here thinking that everybody at Monta Vista needs to be level five teachers. You may not be ready for that. And somebody may need to be honest with you about that. But you got to get past stage two. How does that work? When you're a middle preteen age in Christ, you should start learning how to study the Bible for yourself. Just mixing a few ingredients. I don't mean building some epic sermon or teaching a full class on Hebrews, but you got to start making a few connections, you know? Like you're not listening to a podcast, you're not listening to a sermon, you're not sitting in a Bible class, you're sitting down by yourself going, you know, I think I can make, I think I see that connection. And that's where I, I hinted to you in the very beginning when I said, hey, why not read through the New Testament this year? And every time you see an Old Testament reference, just go back and make a note. Like that's you beginning to make a few meals for yourself. We need Bible students in the church. Everyone ought to be a Bible student in the church. I'll say this because we barely know each other and you know I'm not pointing a finger directly at you, although my finger is pointing at someone. I'm sorry, here. Like if, if Sunday worship is pretty much all of the Bible study you're getting in in a week, you're not even 13 in Christ. Like you're not a teen in Christ. You're not preteen in Christ. We've got to be studying. This should just be something that we do. But more than that, we should be studying. And here's where it gets really, really cool. And I've got a couple of teenagers who've gone through this process where you start studying on your own. And guess what happens when you study the Bible on your own? You get super excited about stuff. You get really excited about connections that you, like you did that. The preacher didn't do it for you. You found something really, really awesome that works. I've got the best job in the world. I get up every Sunday and I share with people what worked. Like that's my whole job. And I love to do it. Well, you're going to start doing that. And just like the, my daughter bringing the scones in there going, everybody try these scones, which weren't very good in the beginning. When they first served them to me, I thought they were called stones. <laughs> you know, and then she kind of stuck at it and she got it and she softened it and it got better. Look, the first time you share a Bible idea with a family member or you have a spiritual conversation at church, you may totally miss the mark and they may be honest with you about that, but you're still excited about it. What we need in Christ is people who sit at their dinner table and they want to talk about God. Not because, you know, the Bible says to talk about God, but because you were studying something and you just can't wait to share it. People say, why do we have so many conversations at, at home, usually about hating the Cowboys is what everybody talks about at home, but why do we have so many conversations in the church building and outside about things that aren't biblical? Why don't we have more Bible? We do have Bible conversations. But why don't we have more Bible conversations? Because a Bible conversation doesn't start unless you're excited about something in the Bible. Like you've got to be totally stoked about something that you want to run by someone and you want to share it with them. And so what we find is level three starts to make it and study. Level four starts to share it. And then go to Hebrews five. Level five. Maturity in Christ is when you've gained confidence in sharing and posting about it and talking about it that you yearn to teach the word and make teachers. Please remember what you just heard. Level five is for teachers who make teachers. Teachers who make teachers. I want to share the word with you and I want to show you how to learn the word. I want to share a connection with you and I want you to see how to make that connection. And that shows up in preaching. It shows up in Bible class teaching. It shows up in Facebook posts. It shows up around the Thanksgiving dinner table. Like I just want to help someone else grow. And unless 
you're a teacher of the word, then you're not mature in Christ to the place where God wants you to be. So look, I don't know where you are on this, but I'll say this as we get into these two passages here at the bottom on spiritual life. Wherever you are is where you are tonight. And it won't be different when you wake up in the morning. But what can happen is you can see what's next, turning from self to producing. And you can start working in that direction. Go to Hebrews 5. Here's what the Bible says. It's about Melchizedek and the high priesthood and all those interesting concepts that he wanted to share with them. And he says in verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be what? Teachers. By this time, you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. It almost looks like they've gone backwards. Like they had moved further, and now they're moving back again. He says in verse 13, For everyone who practices, partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. They start studying on their own, verse 14. Start studying on your own, writing down ideas, making notes. And then, verse 12, you start teaching it to people. I've always wondered about this text. He said, by this time, you ought to be teachers. How much time do you think he's talking about? You think he's saying, if you've been a Christian for five years, you ought to be sitting down at a kitchen table teaching someone the truth? Is that possible? How about 10 years? For by this time, it's been 10 years. You ought to be able to sit down and conduct a Bible class for teenagers. What about 20 years? How much time is it? I don't know that it's based on time, but I know that there are people in the church who have been Christians for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, who cannot recall the last time. They sat down with someone to share the word with them. What's this deal about retirement spiritually? You know what this deal is? It's, it's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of just come, sit, listen, be good. That's the end of it. It's not even barely the beginning of it. He goes on to say in, in chapter 6, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal uh, judgment. And so he goes back to these basic things that they needed again. They'd gone the wrong way. But again, you can almost read this and think, well, they just need to learn the principles again. But that wasn't it. They needed to be teaching those principles. Let me show it to you in Ephesians. It's as clear as you're going to see it. Go with me to the book of Ephesians and chapter 4, please. Ephesians 4. Speaking of uh, how much time passes, it makes me think of Acts chapter 8. How long have they been Christians in Acts 8? Anybody know? Not very long. And even under persecution after Stephen had been put to death, what did everybody go out doing? Anybody remember? They went out preaching the word. They may have only been Christians for a few years. They had grown quickly because back then, you want to talk about first century? You know what first century Christianity was about? Making disciples. End of sentence. I would, end of sentence. It was about sharing the gospel and helping people, you're not going to believe it, get to heaven. Like, help, it wasn't about holding court, keeping the attendance numbers up, or always being there. It was about making disciples. So they matured quickly and began teaching the word, and that's who we need to become. Look in verse 11. You're in Ephesians 4. 
Ephesians 4, verse 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I'm going to pause there and then read a little more. I want you to raise your hand if you're one of these, okay? This is a participation sermon. I should have told you, should have warned you, didn't. Apostles. Okay, if anybody raised their hand, I was going to change tomorrow night's sermon. <laughs> Prophets. No? Evangelists. Okay. Pastors. All right. Teachers. Teachers. Teachers! Teachers, yeah. What if, what if it's not a Catholic-like hierarchy? You know, in Catholicism and in denominationalism, you have the, the guy with the hat at the top, and then you have the guys with the red hats under that, and then you have the guys with the special garb under that, and, and there's this line. You know, you come down several stages, and then you get to this line, and under that, what do they call everybody under that? Do you guys know what they call them? I always felt like such an insult. They call them La like lay I always thought it was like lame men, but it's laymen, okay? So you're either a layman, and guess what laymans do? They just show up, and they give money, and they stick their tongue out, and they leave. Like they're, I mean, they literally just walk up and get fed, and they go. And so you have like the, the teaching system, and then the non-teachers. I'm afraid we have adapted that, and it's error. They're, they're wrong about that. What if... What if the list of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, what if teachers was actually as low as it was ever supposed to go? Hmm. What if the lowest rung, the least honorable, 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, the least honor, like the lowest rung person in the church was still at least yearning to be a teacher? You say, no, 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 not buying that. That verse 11 is, you know, they're the ones who build mature Christians. They're the ones who does the work. Well, pick up in verse 14. That's not right. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking, watch this carefully, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what? Every joint supplies, not just the guys at the top. By what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, if I'd have started with verse 16 and 17 and said, who's supposed to help build the body? You would have said, everybody. Everybody does. So let me back up and push that button a little bit further. How about verse 15? Is that for everybody? Speaking the truth in love. Who's supposed to speak the truth in love? All right, last time with the hands, I promise. Raise your hand if you're supposed to speak the truth in love. You know what that's called? Can I take the term speak the truth in love and can I just put it in a one word term? Would that be okay? Teacher. That's what a teacher does. A teacher knows the truth, sees someone who needs the truth, and speaks the truth in love. Every one of us. 
should be aspiring. Am I talking about public preaching? No, not necessarily. Or ladies teaching Bible classes? Not necessarily, but there's someone in your life right now. I guarantee it. We don't know each other too well. There's someone in your life right now who needs to hear the truth. Hopefully, and I'm speaking generically, you guys are great. Hopefully, hopefully Sean will one day preach a sermon on that. So I'm just going to keep praying for that family member. I'm just going to keep praying about that until an elder visits them or until Sean finally preaches that sermon. Sean, don't you preach that sermon for them. I mean, you can if you want. Don't wait on Sean to be the teacher. You be the teacher. Teach people in love. And look, again, you're saying, I'm not ready for that. I know who I need to teach. I'm not ready. Remember, I told you, you don't have to be level five. You need to find out where am I on this thing? And what does better look like? And if you keep getting better, you will become someone who wants to share the meals you make with others. A couple of thoughts here as we get to the end of this. Go to Acts 20. A couple of thoughts here. Acts 20. I was doing a little study on some of the major players, the big characters in the church, in the history of the church, those who would be esteemed as honorable in the church. And I came up with this list. I think you'll agree with it. I would probably put Jesus Christ at the top. He's very honorable. He established the church under him. You have the apostles whom he selected and prophets. You could throw them in there as well, apostles and prophets. Eventually, they established shepherds, pastors, elders, bishops, you know, the, the terminology, leaders of the church. And then ultimately, as, as we grow in a church, you have older, well, you have preachers, of course, you know, very young preachers here tonight. But you have preachers, and then you end up with, you know, older, remember, older men and women. These are typically people who, you know, in the church have some level of respect. Can I just show you? that it is God's expectation for everyone on that list to be level five. If you're older, God wants you to be level five. Sean, level five, man. God accepts nothing. Let me show what I'm talking about. If I looked at Jesus' life and I spent a little time doing this, I will tell you that Jesus' mission was really simple. And by the way, we like following Jesus. That's a big deal for us. We call ourselves followers of Jesus. Discipleship is our life. Jesus was a teacher who made teachers. Do you agree with that? Jesus was a teacher who didn't just teach, he wanted to show other people how to teach. And then came the apostles, and guess what the apostles did? They taught and they recruited teachers. They taught and they made teachers. Were they working on themselves along the way? You know that they were. Were they still taking in? Of course. But it was only to build energy to teach. Teachers are what we need to see from our shepherds. You know, I, I've gotten, I was telling Sean at dinner, uh, we just kind of went through like sermons that have gotten us in trouble over the years. And I think my list is probably a little longer than Sean's list. It's fine. But one of the things that gets me in trouble is every time I'm asked to preach on elder qualifications, because everybody wants to know what having faithful children means. And they think that the preacher's just supposed to like, you know, like laid out a wool thing and, it, and know, like we just, we know what you know. Uh, or or the, uh, the one about husband and one wife, you know. But you know what's not talked about enough is apt to teach. Apt to teach. I was at a church one time in East Texas, and they said, yeah, we got three elders here. I said, that's great. Yeah, we got the, uh, the money elder and the people elder and the teacher elder. And I was like, which one are you? And he's like, I'm the money guy. I'm like, that sounds like a really great deacon. But anyway, <laughs> I want you to see and listen, if you're an elder in the room, look, I taught this lesson. This is new material for me. I taught it a week or two ago at home. We have eight shepherds there. 
Got a few of them that I, I, I don't think they would ass assess themselves at this point as level five in their growth. And that's okay. Because it's not about where you are, it's about where you're going. And what we learn in Acts 20, you know, I could take you to Titus where you need to be able to teach because we need elders to be able to refute error. Uh, not hire a guy to refute the error, like be able to do so in love. But, you know, when you go to Acts 20 and you think about what Paul told the elders from Ephesus when they went out to Miletus to meet him, he said in verse 32, I commend you, shepherds, to God and to the word of his grace. So definitely shepherds are going to be great Bible students. And by great, I just mean devoted, you know, like really all in Bible students. So verse 35, they can work hard and they can help the weak. Help the weak. This text is teaching that shepherds will be teachers. Maybe it involves a microphone, but most of the time it does not. They will help them and teach them and strengthen them. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's say the same thing about preachers, and it could not be more clear. When you talk about what a preacher's job is, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, it's to teach and make teachers. Like That's it. That's the main job, is to learn the word, to teach it, and to make teachers. Look in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is Paul talking to a preacher named Timothy. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to do what? Teach others also. What's really cool about this is I just proved point number two, that Paul was teaching Timothy to be a teacher. And then he said, all right, I've taught you so that you can be a teacher, so that you can teach the men so that they can be teachers. Do you see it? The whole idea, and Sean, it's got me thinking about it, man. I said something at the elders meeting uh, dinner Sunday night, and I think Sean was like, I don't know about that. But look, a preacher's job to me now in the church, I mean, I like, fe I'm feeding you some things tonight, and I hope you, you're learning, you're taking that. That's fine, perfectly fine. But the, the big goal is to become almost entirely replaceable. To be someone who, when the preacher leaves, it's not like, who's going to, what's going to? And you guys are so good at this, by the way. you got men who teach, preach every month, and you have ladies who teach classes, but it's, pro it's probably still kind of 80-20 maybe. What we're saying is 100% of us working in that direction, and a preacher's job is to teach people how to grow and how to share the word. And the first time Sean hears, and maybe he has here already, about somebody got baptized and Sean never got a phone call. All he got was a memo saying, hey, we had some studies with someone and we taught them and they obeyed the gospel. Can I just tell you that nothing on the planet in the history of the world makes a preacher feel better about his work than hearing that the people who he's been teaching have taught people. And they've done so without him having to come and open the jar and feed it to them. They are doing it. It's a beautiful and powerful thing. And of course, if I go to Titus, I'll see as we get to the end of this study, I'll see that that's what the goal was for older members, older men and older women. I think you've seen this passage before. Look in Titus chapter 2. He mentions in verse 2, older men, and it tells them to you know, behave properly. We understand that, verse 2. And verse 3 tells older women that they need to also behave properly. We get that. But there's more, isn't there? The older women, verse 4, are to be encouraging the younger women, like in specific things, to love their husbands, to love their children, sensible, pure, and so forth. And I would say verse 6 is connecting back to older men. 
Older women, verse 3, are to be encouraging younger women, verse 4. Older men, verse 2, are to be urging young men to be sensible in all things, showing yourself to be an example. Older teach. I mean, that's the way it works in life. The older feed the younger and teach them how to go out and raise their own families. That's what we need to do. I have to say this, you know, even though, I mean, I'm the preacher with the suit and stuff, I still have two teenagers who listen to about 41% of the things that I say. I'm being, I'm being generous on both ends of the scale there. They listen, but I'm dad. You know what makes me feel so great? Like, do you think I did marriage, have marriage conversations with my daughter before she got married? I mean, the preacher, right? A little. But let me tell you what happened. Two couples from church, one our age and one older, took my daughter and her fiancé in and had them over and studied. I never heard about it. Had Bible studies with them, five of them, ten of them, mentoring them. They are accountable, these younger people, not just to mom and dad and God, but to those families as well. Older teaching younger, and it's strong and it's powerful, and it makes all the difference in the world. So as we get to the end, I want you in 1 Thessalonians, and then we're finished. 1 Thessalonians. I have a vision for the church building. I've been making a lot of, um, making a lot of noise at home about our church building, and I'm not really saying anything. I'm just kind of a preacher that says stuff. But it, it bothers me that, you know, one of you had, had visited Lindale a few years ago, that, you know, we have a, a, a beautiful multi-bazillion dollar structure. It's fine. And we, we go into it for Four hours a week. How many hours are there in a week? 160-something? We, 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 spend, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to go into a building and have most of the people just sit and listen for four to five hours a week. To me, that is becoming just... I don't have words for how I feel about that. So you say, what are you saying? Well, I'm saying we got two choices. You guys ready? You're like, we got a choice. We'll put you on a plane and get you out of here. Those are our choices. One choice is we can sell it all. We can just, you know, go meet out under a tree somewhere and go help a bunch of other Christians. I'm okay with that. In Phoenix, I would be. But you know what else we could do? What, what if, and I know it's a little tough here because you guys all live kind of far away. Maybe we're talking about houses, but where we are in Lindale, I'm talking about the building. What, about, what if the building was open seven days a week? Like on Monday nights, an elder conducted a study all year long. Different elders, just any sheep that want to come can come. People say, Chris, we'd love for you to work in an authority class next year. Why? You're a shepherd, just start an authority class. On a Monday and invite people. On Tuesday, what if we just had married couples come up here and teach younger married couples? You can move that around, right? On Thursday nights, have the teenagers come up and and just sing. And maybe have a little devotional or a study or something like that. On Friday nights, we study social issues or, or money management. The Bible has a ton to say about that. And we help families get out of these holes that they're in, that we just ignore a lot. Maybe on Saturdays, we, we just have Bible readings and we send out flyers all up and down the road. Hey, just a Bible read. Anybody wants to come here and read the Bible, we can do it. You notice that I just gave you a full slate of things, and I didn't even mention what? Sunday or Wednesday? I didn't even mention that. We'll keep doing that. And we just have families and teenagers and parents and men and women just teaching. Can you imagine the effect that that would have on the community? I want to get there, and I believe, I told the elders at Lindale, I don't know if it's our 2021 vision, but seven days a week Bible studies in a centralized location, it's, it's within range for us. Is it for you? If when I say, is it for you, you immediately think of someone else's name, 
I'd like to turn back the clock and preach this for you one more time. I want you to think about your name. Can I get there? What would it look like in its first stages? How can I grow? First Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church, my favorite church, favorite one. Of, I don't know if you're probably not supposed to pick favorite churches, but it is. You know, they get a bad rap with that whole the Berean guys were better than the Thessalonian guys. I defend my Thessalonians there. That was those Jews in the synagogue. That was not the church. The church was great. And I love the fact that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, they'd grown so quickly. It says in verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, that's like their counties, their regions, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything, Paul writes. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols, to serve a living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let me just tell you what's going on here. Paul shows up in these cities and he says, let me tell you about Thessalonica. And they're like, you don't need to tell us. They've already been here. Like Thessalonians are everywhere. They're telling their story to everyone. They're telling us about the first time you visited there, Paul. They're telling us about how they turn from idols. They're telling us about the living God. They're telling us how they're waiting for the son, how he was raised from the dead and how he's the great deliverer. Like Thessalonians won't shut up about it. You don't even need to tell us. They're already telling everybody. That's a vision I can get behind. Every Christian sharing the truth in love. But you know, the Thessalonians couldn't share something that wasn't here first. They couldn't share a message of hope unless they felt hope. They couldn't share something that was good unless they'd first eaten it of themselves and said, that's good. I want someone else to try that now. And so if you're here tonight, and the reason why you haven't been sharing the message of Christ is because you haven't been enjoying the message of Christ. You haven't been rewarded by the message. You can't tell a story that you don't know. You can't share an emotion that you don't already feel, and you can't give something that you don't have. Maybe that's where it starts, turning your life over fully to Christ, being baptized into Christ, being redeemed by Him. Now you've got a story to tell, and as you grow, you'll tell it. You'll tell it again and again, and you'll never stop telling it until you get to tell it to the very King when you see Him face to face. We can help you with that. Let's grow as we stand together and sing.